what will things look like at a mass level when people realize that ending aging is imminent? Literally, it's going to go almost overnight from almost everybody in the world expecting to live only slightly longer than their parents did to most people in the world expecting to live vastly longer and in a healthy state. And that is going to have an enormous impact on what kind of life insurance package they're going to want and health insurance and inheritance arrangements and, you know, everything you can imagine, the big ticket items that drive the global economy. This time, I sit down with Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey is a research scientist who has made it his life's mission to end aging. That's right, end aging, not slow it, not treat it, but end it. And in this podcast, he will explain his step-by-step approach to ending aging, what the world will look like when people realize that the end of aging is imminent and why this mission is anything but ridiculous. Aubrey is also the chief science officer of the SENS Research Foundation and author of the book, Ending Aging, the rejuvenation breakthroughs that could reverse aging in our lifetime. Quick note, this podcast was recorded on back-to-back days in two separate segments. So when you hear me mention the quote-unquote last time we spoke about 45 minutes in, that is what I'm referring to. To support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Auxoro. That's patreon.com slash Auxoro for bonus episodes and access to early releases of the podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Aubrey de Grey. All right. Well, Aubrey, hello again. We are back from the, the technical difficulties. So... I think a good place to start would be the pro-aging trance because I was having a little bit of difficulty understanding it for myself. And like I said, that could have been because I was under a bit of that trance myself. I'd never heard aging explained in that sort of way before that you had explained the the pro-aging trance. And then I heard you tell the story of seeing a hypnotist at Cambridge that made it all click for me. And I think it would be great for listeners if you wouldn't mind retelling what happened at Cambridge, what you saw, and how that relates to pro-aging, the pro-aging trance. Sure, yes. So let me tell the story not quite chronologically. I think it will make more sense that way. So let me start out by how I was before Cambridge. In fact, from my earliest days, the thing is that I had always... It has always been completely obvious to me that aging is a medical problem that we have the potential eventually to solve. In other words, that in principle, medicine can be developed that will keep people truly youthful, both mentally and physically, however long ago they were born. This simply followed, in my view, from the obvious fact that the human body is a machine that therefore has a set of functions that are defined by its structure, and medicine is all about manipulating that structure. And what I didn't do, what I never realized, was that this was a minority opinion back then, that most people didn't think of aging that way and had some kind of mystical idea that it was some kind of thing outside of anything that medicine could ever manipulate. And when I started working in this field and talking to people about the importance of this and the feasibility of doing something about aging, I was just completely blown away by the reactions that I would get. People saying the most obviously ridiculous things and absurdly illogical arguments saying either that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise or else that aging is somehow completely natural and inevitable and universal and immutable. And I just heard this over and over again And it began to dawn on me that I had had one prior experience, which very much resembled this. And that was this hypnosis show that you're describing here. So this was in my first year as an undergrad at Cambridge, so probably 1982 or 83. And I uh, went to this show, very good show, maybe a few hundred undergraduates were the audience. And 
one of the things that the hypnotist did was to explore logic. So what he did was he basically got somebody on stage and put them into a very deep trance. And then he told them, he convinced them to believe something that's not true. The particular thing was he switched the, switched the subject's elbows. So he said, okay, you know, this is actually your right elbow and this is your left elbow. And he didn't explore the ramifications of this at all. He just got the person to completely, absolutely, uncritically believe this thing, which is what you can do if you're hypnotized. If someone's mm-hmm. hypnotized. And then he said, okay, please touch your right elbow with your left forefinger. And of course, there was lots of wriggling and writhing and, um, you know, um, failure to do this. And that was funny, obviously. But that was not the main aspect of this little segment of the show. That was funny enough, but then the interesting thing happened. So the hypnotist says, okay, uh, you can stop now. And the guy stops. And then the hypnotist says, you couldn't do it, could you? And the guy says, no. And then the hypnotist says to the subject, why not? Why couldn't you do it? And this was the extraordinary thing. The subject then gives a completely lucid, you know, grammatically correct explanation for why he could not touch his right elbow with his left forefinger. You know, the explanation, I can't remember what the explanation was, but that doesn't matter. The point is that it was obviously ridiculous. I mean, utterly ridiculous. And of course, the audience is rolling in the aisles at the ridiculousness of the explanation. And this is a bunch of people, you know, they're Cambridge undergraduates, highly intelligent people, and so is the guy on Mm -hmm. stage, right? And, you know, generally a high opinion of their own intellectual capability and of each other's intellectual capability. And the guy's just completely not realizing and not even caring about the fact that he has made such an idiot of himself. And, you know, as, as far as I was concerned, it's just like that. When people defend aging and say, you know, we shouldn't be trying to fix it, they are exhibiting that level of lack of reason, lack of rationality, despite the fact that they're perfectly rational about every other aspect of life. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds crazy to think because, you know, I, I've never been hypnotized before by a hypnotist. I'm sure I've been hypnotized by other ways of thinking in ways that I haven't even realized. But it's crazy to think that if you could you can see a logic that may be completely ridiculous to other people, but when you're experiencing it yourself and you're seeing everything from your own point of view, it's, it seems factual and it seems accurate and you don't see it as a break in the system. You see it as this is the way it is for me. So of course, everyone else has to see this as well. Of course, everyone else is seeing things the way I am. Right. So there's a eureka moment that you describe in your book, Ending Aging, could you give a give an overview of what led up to that Eureka moment? Because I know a lot there are a lot of things that led up to that uh, moment and the and the formation of SENS and the the seven segments of damage repairs you describe in the book. Could you give people a brief overview of what that Eureka moment was and, and what led up to it? Sure, absolutely. So So I started thinking about aging in the mid-90s, and that was the kind of time when I started having these conversations about the desirability and feasibility of doing anything about it. But of course, that was just the start. I had to get up to speed. I had to, you know, learn what was already known about aging in order to have a chance of coming up with any new ideas that might have value. So that really was what I did for five years or so. I was going to a lot of conferences, you know, getting to know the, the leaders in the field, generally getting as comprehensive and in-depth knowledge as I could of what was already known about aging. Then I was invited to take part in a small workshop, maybe only a dozen people, in Los Angeles in the summer of 2000, which was convened by a non-biologist, a guy who had decided he wanted to really do something about aging. And he had a little bit of money, so he'd employed a couple of people, and he'd put together this little foundation and he convened this meeting. And there were a few other uh, senior gerontologists there. And it was a two-day meeting. And the first day happened, and to me, it was extraordinarily disappointing because the remit that we had been given was to come up with radical new ideas that were dramatically, you know, out of the box. And this was just totally not happening. Everyone was just totally parroting stuff that everybody already understood and knew. 
So the thing is, it was Los Angeles, and I was based in the UK at that time, so I had jet lag. So I was basically awake for most of the night. And I was frustrated about all of this. This is after the first day of the meeting. And it suddenly dawned on me what we'd all been missing, not just we in the, in the workshop, but the whole community. Coming back to the reason why I always thought it obvious that aging could, in principle, be brought under medical control, uh, remember, that's because the body is a machine. And so why does the machine go wrong? Why does any machine go wrong after a long period of time, after it's reached its warranty period, if you like? Um, because it's a, it has accumulated damage progressively throughout its life um, as a consequence, as a bunch of consequences of its normal operation, just as a feature of physics. It just happened. Uh, but the thing is that we know from uh, the... Um, the situation with simple machines like cars or aeroplanes, that that is transcendable. That it's possible to completely exceed the warranty period of a car, for example, just by doing unusually comprehensive preventative maintenance on it, which just basically means removing the damage before there's too much of it, before the doors fall off. So I realized that actually this is the way that we should be going about um, extending the healthy lifespan of the human body. because the human body is also a machine. And this was a big paradigm shift because before then, everyone had said, well, basically the only thing we can do is to make the body run more cleanly. In other words, to slow down the rate at which the body creates this damage, you know, self-inflicts this damage in the first place. And people had more or less given up on being able to do that because they had recognized that in order to do that, one would have to have an extremely in-depth, detailed understanding of how the body works which is, you know, just way beyond us because the body is so complicated. And of course, unlike, the, unlike cars, we don't have the plans. So, you know, it's just not a, not, not, not a plausible approach. Whereas preventative maintenance is completely different because there, the only thing you have to do is to characterize what the damage is. In other words, what changes are happening to the structure and composition of the body. You don't have to understand much detail about how the damage is generated or for that matter, much detail about how the damage is bad for you, how it actually translates into pathologies once there is too much of it. So this is a completely new idea. And of course, I jotted it down as best I could and uh, presented it to the workshop the following morning, first thing. And nobody understood a word that I said. I'm sure I said it very badly, far, far less well than I've just said it to you. Yeah, you've had some practice. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, a few months later, I ran my own workshop with only half a dozen people, which was basically the, uh, the purpose was to break my idea, to find ways in which this could not work. And well, um, the idea survived the workshop to an extent that I was able to write it up as an academic paper with all of the participants in the workshop as co-authors. And that came out eventually in 2002. And, you know, the rest is history. So the basic understanding of the the eureka moment or the basic shift for you was the body operates like a machine and and you said a car or a laptop for example because i have it right in front of my face and and i can actually extend the life of this laptop by replacing the hard drive i just had an e key fall off my laptop i i can get a new key i can put it back i can replace a cracked screen and the human body in a way is like a machine where if you do preventative maintenance before the damage accumulates to the point where I need to buy a new, like a completely new laptop, that is a much more viable way of ending aging than trying to understand each damage process going on. Like why is this key being destroyed or why is this screen like you don't necessarily have to understand or treat everything about the individual processes if you can repair the damage that's right exactly so actually it would probably be appropriate for me to address before you even ask since you might not ask two objections to this way of looking at the problem that have often been made because they are you know ostensibly quite valid but in fact there are good answers to them the first one is well, hang on. I mean, the body is so enormously complicated that surely 
it's, you know, the damage that it inflicts on itself is also unmanageably complicated. So yes, maybe this is the common sense approach to do this damage repair, but surely it's impossible because we'd have to fix so many different things. The reason why that turns out not to be such a barrier as it sounds is because of the seven strands that you mentioned briefly earlier on. The fact that, yes, there are many, 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 many types of damage that accumulate, but they can all be classified into these, this manageable number of categories. There are seven categories. And that classification is defined by the method of damage repair. In other words, everything within one particular category is repaired in more or less the same way. And that, that vastly simplifies the, approach, the, the, the challenge of developing this damage repair. That's an important thing to understand. Another thing that people often say is, well, hang on, living organisms are not really machines at all because they do their own damage repair. They have many, many things built in that um, allow them to eliminate changes as they happen rather than allowing them to accumulate. And that sounds like a really big challenge, a big a challenge to the analogy with cars and so on. But it's not, because actually it works in our favor. It is absolutely true that we do have enormous amounts of built-in damage repair machinery. But then you have to ask, why do we age at all? Why do we get the accumulation of damage? And some people simplistically say, well, it's because the damage repair machinery doesn't work so well late in life. But that's no answer at all. It's circular. What causes that to happen, right? And of course, the answer to all of this is that there are some types of damage that we don't have automatic built-in repair mechanisms for. And those are the types that accumulate, which means that the approach of doing preventative maintenance with medicine simply constitutes augmenting these existing automatic built-in damage repair machinery. So essentially, evolution is on our side here. We are just filling in the gaps in what evolution has already constructed for us. Yeah, no, it's it's weird that people would, or it's weird that there's evidence that there's mechanisms that are already in place in our body that repair damage on their own. And so you would think that would be a sign to enhance that with the technology we have to allow our bodies to more efficiently repair damage. And that would be the answer in, in super simple terms, because there are other ways where people do think like that. They have much less problems thinking like that. Like for, for weed, with example, we have cannabinoid receptors built into our bodies. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, this is a plant. We were meant to smoke it. We have cannabis in our body. There are other things that already exist in our body. Maybe this is the right approach because it's innate in human nature. This must not be like a super damaging way to live your life, to, to smoke this substance. And that seems like a weird comparison, but it, it made me think of how society thinks in terms of things built into our body versus what we're supposed to do. And it seems like aging should also fall into that or, or will eventually fall into that, hopefully. Right, exactly. So in terms of the, the, the new ideas, because you mentioned you were frustrated when you were in a group of scientists that were responsible for coming up with new ideas and they were parroting other ideas, offering slight modifications on other things that were already existing. Do you think people are scared of the simplicity in some way? Like the, the, the simplicity of the essence of the problem, repairing damage, like it almost seems too easy because we see the complex problems and we like want a complex solution. And I, I experienced that in my own life where I see a problem that seems super complex. And even though I could solve it in 15 minutes, I like want to do something to keep me occupied. So I come up with a more complex solution. Is, do you think that's part of it? People are like scared of the simplicity? Not exactly. But there is a perhaps similar thing that stood in the way of widespread scientific acceptance of this way of thinking for a while, though it's, that's, that's, it's history now. For the past 10 years, things have been very straightforward that way. So the big thing that stood in the way, I think, was the fact that there is a huge mindset disparity between basic scientists and technologists. 
So what is that, first of all, what am I saying there? Basic scientists are people who understand nature, who try to do experiments to figure out how to understand nature better. Technologists are all about manipulating nature, uh, using, obviously, the knowledge that the scientists have generated, the extent to which I understand. Now, that sounds like these, uh, the, the, the two communities of experts would have a lot in common, right, in terms of how they think and so on. But it turns out that's not really the case, that scientists, because they're all about understanding nature, there is no sense in which they can say to themselves, okay, we understand nature enough. Let us, like, do something else. The idea of understanding enough just kind of doesn't compute. And so the best experiments are the ones whose, the best questions are the ones whose answers will generate more questions, which is fine up to a point. But the thing is, technologists use information in a completely different way. They're constantly looking for ways to, if you like, short-circuit their ignorance to use the little that is already known without in any way denying that there's an enormous amount they don't know, but nevertheless finding ways to get around that and to manipulate nature anyway. Very different way of thinking. And when I was starting to get into this field in the late 90s, gerontology was very much a basic science. It was all about understanding it better. And people have more or less given up trying to do anything about it. So there were no technologists, and kind of technologists were kind of almost looked down upon for being unrealistic and unscientific and over-optimistic and so on. And so I was bringing in a very different way of thinking about this. So it's not really the case that the damage repair paradigm was resisted because it was too simple, was, was like implausibly simple. It was more a case that it was resisted simply because it was a big paradigm shift. It was just outside of the way of thinking about aging that the basic scientists were familiar with. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Is, is there something interesting to be said about the damage in general without necessarily going into each specific type of damage that would explain why it's the, the focus at a deeper level? Like, What is it about the nature of damage that allows you to essentially ignore the more complex processes of the damage itself. Yeah, the fundamental thing is that it is, it is the intermediate between metabolism and pathology. So if you, if you like, the, the goal of extending healthy lifespan can be stated as allowing the body to continue operating, in other words, continue performing its metabolism. Metabolism is just the word that biologists use to denote the entire network of processes that keep us alive to carry on doing that without exhibiting eventually, ex eventually exhibiting pathologies, i.e. decline in mental or physical function. That's all it is. So damage is the intermediary here. Aging can be described as, these, as the combination of these two processes, one process where metabolism generates damage, and that's the process that goes on literally throughout life, even starting before we're born. And then the second process where damage eventually drives pathologies when there is more of it than what the body is set up to tolerate. Because, of course, the body is set up to tolerate a certain amount of damage. That's why we don't start going downhill until middle age or later. So then we can say, well, okay, the goal is to separate metabolism from pathology. We could, in principle, do it by separating metabolism from damage. But as I said, that would require us to understand metabolism far better than we're anywhere near doing. In principle, we could also do it by separating damage from pathology, by allowing people to carry on functioning even though they're accumulating a lot of damage. But that's also a non-starter, because damage just, you know, the body is only set up to tolerate a certain amount. So the idea of simply repairing the damage periodically is a way of getting a, of avoiding the need to actually attenuate either of the two component processes. We can simply get rid of damage fast enough, faster than it's being generated, and then we don't have to slow down the rate at which it's being generated. Similarly, if we can do that, we will keep damage below the threshold level above which it would cause pathology. So again, we don't have to understand why it would cause pathology if there were more of it. Do you have a, a favorite type of damage to work on, like one where you personally feel like you have the best understanding and it, it takes up most of your time. Do you have a one of the seven that you are working on more than the others right now? No, 
I did early on in the 90s, before I'd really even formulated the seven strands, my main focus was on mitochondrial mutation. That was really more of an accident than anything else. It was just the one that I got focused on first. But as soon as I realized that damage repair is the way to go, I immediately recognized that it would be a very bad idea to focus on only one or a subset of them, because any one of them can kill you on its own, however well we fix all the others, more or less on schedule, right? So um, we've got to not prioritize. Of course, at Sense Research Foundation, we do prioritize, but the way in which we do so is by complementing what other people are doing. So we prioritize the things that are being deprioritized by other people, typically because they're too difficult. Okay, so so you guys focus on a, a, a few types of damage in particular, and then you look at what other labs are doing around the world, and you, and you try to coordinate in a global effort, something like that? Right. I mean, we, are, we of course, we do talk to people around the world all the time, but in addition to talking, we obviously read the literature, we go to conferences, so it's all about you know, keeping abreast of what progress other people are making, what's becoming fashionable, if you like, and adjusting our priorities accordingly. That's happening. So, for example, one of the categories is the elimination of senescent cells from, from the body. And that, 20 years ago, was you know, a really new idea, the idea that we could actually get rid of these cells. But that has become, you know, progress has been made, especially over the past eight or 10 years, and now there are a dozen, well, at least a dozen companies working on that, quite apart from labs. So we are progressively deprioritizing our own work on that. Yeah, senescent cells is, is a wild one. I remember when I first started reading about senescence and the fact that something dead or, or something kind of floating around in your body that you think would be a non-factor may actually destroy the other processes going on because you think of something, it's dead, you don't have to worry about it. Our body will eventually know how to get rid of it. And then kind of like these zombie cells that just stick around and cause havoc and fuck shit up basically in your body. Right. Yeah. A lot of the inspiration for the seven strand sense paradigm that came to me in the year 2000 came from experiments and proposals that had been made only in the previous few years. So in particular, there was a very important paper that came out just a few years earlier, which was the first one to suggest that senescent cells could be actively toxic, actively bad for their, their neighborhood, rather than just being inert and non-functioning. And so that made it much more important to get rid of them. So the damage you mentioned before is more of an all or nothing approach, where if you don't solve all seven types of damage and combine therapies at the same time, then you'll die more or less likely, quote unquote, on schedule, um, unless, unless you figure out a way to treat all seven at the same time. That's right. Yeah. So it's a divide and conquer approach. But one thing to emphasize, which makes it sound a little bit more doable, is that we don't actually have to fix any of the types of damage completely. We only have to fix them fairly well, each of them because we just need to buy ourselves time so as to postpone the accumulation of any type of damage to the pathogenic level. And of course, over that time, the scientists will be getting progressively better at repairing a somewhat greater proportion of the damage. It seems like the future of ending aging would come more quickly when each person has their own eureka moment of their own, where you know, they they can either advocate for the end of aging or, or donate money. Yeah, there, there are billions of people around the world where it's possible that each of these people can have that their own po- personal moment in their own way, like you did, where you kind of realize that this is actually going to be a thing. This can actually happen. And, and when you encounter people, the average person, not necessarily scientists, but when you encounter people that are so stuck in they're thinking about aging, what are the most successful ways or language or things that you've said to them that have kind of helped them go through that internal shift more quickly or more effectively? So first of all, you're very right to distinguish the science community here from the general, the wider world. In the science community, the, the conversation is over. You know, for the past 10 years, everyone has understood that damage repair is a very reasonable way to go. 
various people have come out and essentially restated or reinvented the same concept in their own words. Some of those reinventions have become extremely influential. And, you know, one particular paper came out eight years ago that has become more or less holy scripture within the field. And it's basically just a complete restatement of the idea that I put forward a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. So I never have to have that conversation anymore with scientists. The only real difference of, or spectrum of opinion that exists within the expert community with regard to timeframes. You know, some people are, are more pessimistic than me in terms of how rapidly we will get there. And that's fine. You know, there's no, there's no real problem with that. But when talking to the wider world, and this applies not only to what I say to the wider world, but what other experts say to the wider world, and other experts have different constraints on what they can say without damaging their own funding. Mm-hmm. Basically, it all comes down to the pro-aging trance. It all comes down to the fact that since the beginning of civilization, humanity has known that, you know, aging is this ghastly thing that happens at a more or less predictable age, you know, to everybody who's, who doesn't get, die of something else first, then there's nothing we can do about it. And people have been coming along saying, oh, yes, there is something we can do about it. Uh, do this or do that. And they've always been wrong, you know, since the beginning of civilization. Mm-hmm. Reasonable to be a bit, you know, to be a bit cautious in getting enthusiastic about the next person who comes along and says they know what we can do. At the same time, you know, eventually something works. Research into powered flight was also futile until it wasn't. And people know this in their heart of hearts. But equally, they also know that it would be really ghastly to get their hopes up and then have their hopes dashed if progress is slower than they were, mm. than they were expecting. So people are terrified of getting their hopes up. And the way they manage not to is essentially by maintaining a, an emotional distance from the, the, from the question. And that doesn't mean maintaining ignorance. So the reason I spend my entire life on stage and on camera is because, you know, people really want to know what's going on. But at the same time, they also have to be irrational about it in order to pretend that it's a blessing in disguise and, you know, that I'm probably wrong. So what I do, well, I, I try to be fairly gentle about it. And of course, what I do varies a lot depending on the audience because I want to achieve as much as I can. So if it's an enthusiastic audience, I'll be, you know, talking about how to motivate people more to, you know, work harder or or whatever. And if it's a more skeptical audience, really all I will be trying to do is to dampen down the skepticism and get people to appreciate that they don't really know that this is that the aging is inevitable. They just kind of think it's inevitable. And that's important too. So for example, I know a number of very wealthy people who would be very substantial supporters of my foundation, but they're not because their spouses don't want them to be, because their spouses are less enlightened than they are. A large part of why I set up the foundation as an independent charity was to minimize that problem. It's bad enough when you know individuals can't do what they'd like. But governments are, of course, a great deal worse because at the end of the day, the decisions by governments are made by people who are elected and whose only actual priority is to get re-elected. Therefore, they follow public opinion. And I have to do my best to influence public opinion. I was going to ask you, so so it's a thing in in the scientific community where scientists are extremely careful about what they say depending on how they receive funding. So if they're competing for grants, for example, they might be more restricted and not want to go on camera as much, even though they may believe similar things to you and know similar things to be true. The way that SENS is funded allows you more freedom with your interviews and how you speak publicly about it. That's exactly right. Yes. I mean, essentially, the problem is that public funding from the government, and this is true in any country, is enormously inadequate. So, Really good scientists are competing with each other for a very small pot of money, and most of them won't get it. And of course, that means that they have to figure out how to maximize their chances of getting some money in order to get their research done. Now, of course, the way in which the decisions are made is by this thing called peer review, where experts in the community are appointed to sift through the various grant applications and decide which ones to actually support. And because there's no, I mean, the experts also know that they're going to have to reject a large number of very good proposals. They are constantly casting around for reasons to reject a proposal that are not too arbitrary. 
And a really good reason that's safe and uh, covers their ass is to say, oh, well, this guy shouldn't be funded because he, he is in the habit of saying irresponsible things to the public and getting people's hopes up unjustifiably. So, of course, this means, conversely, that the scientists who are applying have to be ultra curmudgeonly in terms of what they actually say on, in public. I mean, that seems like it would be a huge problem because systems typically produce the results that they incentivize. So if you want to get funding from the government, at least, it sounds like you need to aim lower, essentially. Like you, you can't be as high risk. It's worse than that, actually. Because it's not just the question of what you say to the public. It's also what you apply for money to do. One of the other really good reasons not to give somebody money, if you're on, the, on one of these committees that make these decisions, is if the person who's applying doesn't have much of a track record, if they like, aren't publishing very much in good journals. Which means that, again, the scientists who want to get money from the government have to publish as much as they possibly can, right? But unfortunately, that means emphasizing projects that are essentially low-hanging fruits that can deliver results really quickly. And that, again, enormously disincentivizes the work on the more important problems that may take longer to get published. So we at Science Research Foundation, we publish, absolutely, but we publish when we're ready. We do not decide what to do on the basis of a need to publish. How have you established legitimately, or how, how have you established legitimacy rather so well outside of the peer review system because you know something like podcasting there's no really board of directors that's reviewing my work and saying you can release this podcast you can't and so there's kind of this wild wild west of podcasting where you release whatever you want and, and if people think it's good they'll listen if they don't they won't listen but in science it, it the peer review process is not like that at all from what i understand and that's also what people to see is legitimate. Like the average person will see something in a publication and say, this is legitimate because it was published. So how have you established legitimacy without the peer review process? Ah, well, you see, there are two peer review processes. The one I talked about a moment ago is peer review of grant applications. And that has okay. these huge, massive problems. But the other one is peer review of manuscripts for the acceptance by a journal. And that process is fine. Well, it's, it's got problems too, but it, the, the problems are tiny compared to the problems of the other one. So, as I say, we do publish in good journals. And the reason we do is because we do good work. Otherwise, they would, the good journals would not accept these manuscripts for publication. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, we are legitimized by exactly the same means that other people's work is legitimized. It's just that when we publish, it's a big breakthrough that other people wouldn't have made because they couldn't get the money to do the work. Okay, so you, you participate in the, the peer review process of getting published, but not the, the grant applications. Yeah. I mean, I will say, actually, it's changing a little bit. Right now, over the past year or two, we have started to apply for, actually successfully, for public money, just in, in, a, small, in a small way. But still, the overwhelming majority of our money comes from philanthropy. What is the uh, longevity escape velocity for listeners that may not be familiar with this and what needs to happen for us to reach that point? So longevity escape velocity is a concept that I first defined and talked about probably in, I'm going to say, 2004. And it's all about the progression of technologies to do damage repair. So as I mentioned earlier, we have to repair all of the types of damage in order to have a significant impact on healthy lifespan. But we don't have to repair any of them completely. If we repair all of them reasonably well, then we will be able to get maybe 20 or 30 additional years of healthy life. And the key thing is because it's damage repair, because it's actually bona fide rejuvenation, those extra years can be enjoyed by people who were already in middle age when we actually first applied the therapies to them, because it's going to be able to repair damage that had already accumulated in those people's bodies throughout the rest of their lives. It's just that that damage had not reached the point of making them sick yet, but it was close. So supposing we repair, let's say, three quarters of, or two thirds of the damage that was in this person's body at the age of, let's say, 60, then the one third 
was not repaired, that will have been because it was somehow too resistant. It was more difficult. And so the, therapy, the damage repair therapies didn't work on that subset of the damage. So that subset on its own is going to carry on accumulating. And by the time the person has reached the age of, I don't know, say 90, whatever, then they're going to have as much damage as they had when they were 60, right? Um, before they have the therapies, even though we are constantly applying the therapies that successfully re repair the easy damage. So they're going to get sick eventually, same as, same as they would have otherwise. But here's the thing, that 30 years will have been enough time for scientists to get better at repairing damage. So that actually when the person is 90, they're going to be able to get better therapies that will repair not only the easy damage, but also some subset of the difficult damage. And that means that they will be re-rejuvenated so that they won't be biologically 60, if you like, in, having, in terms of amount of damage for the third time until they're, let's say, 150. So the definition of longevity escape velocity is the minimum rate at which scientists will need to continue to repair, to improve the damage repair in terms of its comprehensiveness, following the point where we get this first generation panel of therapies that give people maybe 20 or 30 years of extra life. And if you think about it, longevity escape velocity goes down over time because the better we get at repairing damage, mm -hmm. the longer it's going to take for the body to accumulate the still impossible, still unrepairable subset of the damage mm -hmm. and better therapies are going to be needed. So that means that there's going to be a single point, and, and, and somebody gave it a wonderful name. They called it the Methuselarity, by analogy with the singularity. What is it called again? Methuselarity. Methuselarity. Okay. So after Methuselah, the oldest person in the Bible. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. So, um, and this is the point where we reach longevity escape velocity for the first time, where the therapies get to be just comprehensive enough that we can stay one step ahead of the problem. When we left off last time, I asked you a question about what the state of the world would be like in the immediate aftermath of us solving the problem of ending aging. And you suggested a better question. So I'll, I'll ask you that instead. What will things look like at a mass level when people realize that ending aging is imminent? So before the treatments become widely available, what will the, you know, the media look like? people's money, changing government policies, things like that? What, what will things look like in the immediate aftermath of people realizing it's imminent? Yeah. So, yeah, the reason why that's the more interesting question is because, at least the way I'm seeing it right now, there's going to be a period of about 10 years, if not more, between those two events. In other words, the global widespread realization that aging is coming to an end will happen when we are still somewhere away from actually delivering all of this to the general public. And 10 years is a fairly long time, which means that by the time the therapies are actually ready for prime time and start to be distributed, all of the really complicated, turbulent stuff will have kind of shaken down. And, and I think everyone's going to be kind of ready. Well, so what I think is going to happen basically is and I think this is probably going to happen within the next five years from now, that results in the laboratories of scientists around the world, and also to some extent in the clinic, in terms of the early stages of rolling certain therapies out for humans, these things will progress to a sufficient point that most of my colleagues within the biology of aging community will start to say things that sound a bit like what I already say about how, you know, this is a tractable problem and it's only a matter of time before we bring aging under medical control. We are just beginning to see the first shoots of that already. Probably the best example is David Sinclair, who has always been one of the, you know, more courageous people in terms of his public statements about aging and his intolerance of bullshit, shall we say. And he wrote a book only 18 months ago, which was called something like Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, which is like, you know, more or less what I did a decade earlier. And that's not because he's more cowardly than me. It's because he has the disadvantage of being a professor at Harvard and, you know, having to worry about where his next grant application is going. And, and also, of course, these days worrying about investor sentiment. So he has to be a fair bit more cautious than I need to be in terms of what he says. 
But things are moving so fast in our in laboratories around the world, as here's everyone else's, that it's becoming possible to say things like that and get away with it. And of course, you know, I'm pretty prominent myself, but I'm just one person. So when I go out and say these things and nobody else is saying them, the opinion formers of the world, the Oprah Winfrey's and so on, they listen to the center of gravity of publicly stated expert opinion. And I'm not that. But I will be fairly soon because of the advances that are going on. And essentially, what's going to happen is that people like Oprah Winfrey are going to be the catalyst, just as they are for everything else. You know, the opinion formers around the world will start saying, well, look, people are saying it's only a matter of time. So let's try and make it a little less time and save some lives. And like the following day, it will be impossible to get elected unless you have a manifesto commitment to, um, you know, to have a war on aging. And of course, the economic arguments are also going to, people are actually going to start listening to the economic arguments that have been made by myself and my colleagues for a long time now, to the effect that, you know, the sooner we actually bring aging under control, the pro more prosperous we're going to be. So that's when it, there's going to be an enormous amount of turbulence. And the turbulence is not going to be helped by the fact that people are going to be taken by surprise. So, you know, I get a chance to speak at conferences with, um, you know, pension funds and uh, insurance companies and so on. The talks I tend to give to groups like that are called things like anticipating the anticipation. In other words, basically, I'm saying, listen, what's going to happen is there's going to be this extremely sudden step change in people's expectation of how long they're going to live. Literally, it's going to go almost overnight from almost everybody in the world expecting to live only slightly longer than their parents did to most people in the world expecting to live vastly longer and in a healthy state. And that is going to have an enormous impact on what kind of life insurance package they're going to want and health insurance and inheritance arrangements and, you know, everything you can imagine, the big ticket items that drive the global economy. And you know, the financial institutions are just not going to be ready because they have had their heads in the sand listening to the actuaries telling them about the trend, the historical trends of life expectancy and, you know, just extending those trend lines, which, of course, gives the completely wrong answer. You know, unless they actually wake up and anticipate the anticipation, in other words, they actually develop potential products that will satisfy the new reality that will dawn so suddenly, you know, they're going to go bankrupt. And some people are beginning to listen. But my fear is that only a, well, only a small minority of such people will have listened enough to have actually done anything um, by the time that this, this, this tipping point actually occurs, only a few years from now. Yeah, so you think that that shift in science communication where more scientists will feel more comfortable or get the balls to start talking about this type of stuff publicly, you think that will happen sometime within the next five years? I do, yes. I mean, remember, we're talking about a very small number of people here. There's a maximum of like a dozen of us who are, you know, acknowledged experts on the biology of aging, and we do a lot of public interface, you know, a lot of, a lot of interviews, a lot of talks to the general public. Very few of us. And we're all good friends. We know each other well. We know each other's views well. So... I'm pretty sure in my estimation of what it's going to take to get those people to come and say the kind of things that I already say. Yeah. And it seems like as an outside observer to the, to the science community, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And up until recently, it seemed like there's been this almost two worlds where there's the, the worlds that the scientists know where they go into their labs and they know how the results are going in real time. And then there's the world that they choose to reveal to the public. And I appreciate the people like you who are willing to get on podcasts and get on interviews and, and say how things are going in real time. And another guy that I like listening to a lot is a neuroscientist named Andrew Huberman, who's at Stanford. And you know, he gets on a podcast and just says like, you know, this is what I've been working on this week. I'm not going to wait till this is published or, or super polished to talk about it. I, I think that's an important thing to tell the public. And so it seems like at least from the the content and, and podcasting game, which I, I do have a pretty good pulse on that, that science communication, that that will be a good outlet to change the conversation and already is becoming one. Totally. 
So something I wanted to ask you, because you spent a few years researching artificial intelligence before you shifted to biology, is there anything you took with you from AI research that is proving advantageous now as you're working on ending aging? Because I imagine that those two worlds are colliding or eventually will collide as artificial intelligence continues to develop alongside the, the treatments. Absolutely. A huge amount of activity at that intersection now. Um, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, state-of-the-art machine learning techniques being used to discover new drugs, to repurpose existing drugs, to address various aspects of aging. It's a very, very vibrant field right now. But it doesn't really have anything to do with what I used to do. You know, back when I was working in artificial intelligence, machine learning as we know it today didn't exist. The whole idea of, you know, modeling the structure of the brain had been considered in the like the 70s and so on, but had been basically thrown out as impractical, not going to work. Only a few people recognized that was premature, that actually there was life in that area of research. And those few people kind of kept the flame alive and eventually less than a decade ago, well, about a decade ago, they kind of had some breakthroughs that created the entire field as we know it today. But back then in the 1980s, when I was working in this field, it was all the opposite way of doing things, what was called good old-fashioned AI, which basically means a symbolic approach trying to codify reasoning in mathematical terms. So really... My experience back then doesn't have much to do with today's interface between AI and biology. However, when I, when I made the switch, so we're talking the mid-90s now, at that point, it was enormously valuable to me. Not in specifics in terms of the actual artificial intelligence work I was doing, but rather because I was coming into the field with a goal-directed you know, technologist mindset and a way of looking at data that was completely complementary, you know, completely different from the way that everyone else in the field was doing, the people who were career biologists and who were regarding aging as a phenomenon to be understood better rather than a phenomenon to be actually manipulated. And honestly, I think I was just in the right place at the right time because it was only in the few years prior to, or around the time that I switched fields, that a lot of the data came along that allowed me to formulate the whole damage repair paradigm. And indeed, a lot of that, a lot of the reason why it was difficult for me to communicate this to my colleagues within gerontology early on was that I was bringing ideas together from areas of biology that had until then not been viewed as relevant to gerontology at all. You know, some of them, not even medicine. Like I, I stole a really important idea from environmental decontamination, which has got nothing to do with medicine at all, but I saw how to adapt it. And that's the kind of thing that very rarely happens in areas where the experts are all basic scientists. The timing was super important for you switching from AI to biology. Things had developed to a point where had you switched earlier or later, it wouldn't have been the, the same effect. Well, certainly if I'd switched earlier, I wouldn't have had the substrate with which to, you know, to bring things together. There were just, there was just not enough. Most of the components were not there yet. If I come along later, well, it's hard to know, to be honest, because, well, it depends how much later, of course. Uh, you know, I would say if I'd come along five years later, there probably still wouldn't have been anyone except me. Um, but maybe 15 years later, it would have been different. So going off of uh, artificial intelligence, I've read a decent amount about uh, Neuralink and, and Elon Musk, and he's a huge figure in science and pop culture, which is rare. And he talks a lot about blowing up rockets and, and failing in, in spectacular fashion. And he's pretty open about the fact that if we weren't blowing up rockets, it would be weird almost, because if you're trying to do something like get to Mars, you should be you know, screwing shit up in a periodic fashion or else you're not going to get there. And he actually calls it a rapid unscheduled uh, disassembly, which I like because I feel like that's a better way to think of things falling apart, whether it's a rocket or your life. Uh, you know, it's not a failure. It's just a rapid unscheduled uh, disassembly. So for ending aging, 
I wanted to ask you, what are, what's an example that stands out to you that is a rapid unscheduled disassembly in your research and your work, you know, the, the ending aging version of blowing up rockets, blowing shit up where you tried something, it didn't work and, and you moved past it. Well, of course, aging is really a rather painfully slow, unscheduled disassembly. In fact, it's kind of scheduled. <laughs> that's kind of the thing that's so scary about it is that you pretty much know yeah. what kind of chronological age you're going to start suffering aging at. First of all, I want to say I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk. I think, you know, he thinks like me. He, he's, he's absolutely, you know, the kind of person who understands that you've got to really aim high in order to make progress. But... Not really, is the answer to your question. Essentially, well, I can answer this in two ways. First of all, at the level of the overall sense plan, really the, one of the best pieces of news that has increasingly emerged over these years is the lack of news. In other words, the fact that we have not discovered any new category of aging, any new type of damage that needs a new approach to fixing it. We have not even discovered reasons why the approaches to repair to damage repair for the existing seven categories in some way you know, not going to work after all and that we, we need a new plan for, for some particular type of damage. None of that has happened, which is fantastic. It means that, you know, the whole paradigm is very much standing the test of time, which, of course, is increasingly strong circumstantial evidence that it's going to carry on standing the test of time. Mm -hmm. So that's a great thing. In terms of actual failures, well, of course, Science is, is like that. You know, every time you do an experiment, it's because you don't know what's going to happen. And when things get to the clinic, then the experiments start to get very expensive. You know, you actually have to have a lot of money to run a clinical trial, and most clinical trials fail. So, yes, that's beginning to happen. So last year, for example, there were a couple of really rather high-profile examples of this in the aging field. A company named RestorBio ran a phase three clinical trial for a, basically a calorie restriction mimetic that did not reach its clinical endpoint. And the company, company collapsed. They, they were already a public company. They lost literally, I think it was 85% of their share price. And they ended up having to essentially do some kind of reverse merger and essentially give up completely on aging. It was you know, a big disaster. But this is what you expect at this kind of stage. Investors are not stupid. They understand that sometimes you have to just ride with, you know, roll with the punches. The other example last year went a very different way. That was Unity Biotechnology, which is the leading company in the analytics space. They ran a clinical trial. This was a phase two clinical trial. So it wasn't as expensive, but still pretty expensive. And it didn't reach its clinical endpoint. And they lost 75% of their share price as well. But they recovered. They've got other trials going on. I mean, their share price is now most of the way back to where it was before that announcement. And that's without any new good news being announced. The other trials that they have going on are still ongoing. The diversity of the field in the private sector is now so great that not just in terms of people but in and companies, but also just the types of technology that have the potential to be prof very profitable indeed. Investors, yes, they have to diversify. They have to take a lot of shots on goal in order to hedge their bets, but they're doing that. So I would say the, the examples of bad news are exactly as Elon says, what, they, what you expect. And if they're not happening, then you're not trying hard enough. So they are happening and that's good. That's interesting. I wanted to, uh, in, in the last 10 minutes or so, I, I wanted to make sure I picked your brain on a little bit of the, the philosophy behind ending aging about human behavior for the future, because that is a thought that repeatedly popped into my head when I was reading your book and watching interviews. And when we have healthy people that are from different eras of thinking, like maybe a guy from the 1950s or maybe someone even as far back as that, that was alive during slavery is now a biologically 40, 50 year old man or woman that's working at a coffee shop in Brooklyn, in order for that to happen without everyone killing each other, there will need to be some sort of forgiveness and, and understanding at a deeper level of how humans are indoctrinated from younger ages and make decisions based on where they grew up, when they grew up. So 
I'm not sure what the right question is in in that regard, but have you, have you given thought to what it will mean for how humans are behaving when you have people of different areas and different belief systems growing up side by side, not just from different areas of the world, but from different time periods? Well, actually, in the last part of your question, you kind of anticipated the first part of my answer, because what I think is that actually there's a strong parallel between the clash of cultures from different parts of the world and the clash of cultures from different areas. As we've seen the world become more globalized with more interaction between different ethnicities, different cultures, different different races, we have, of course, seen unrest. We've seen conflicts arising from that. But, you know, society has figured out how to manage, diminish, dampen down those things and to, you know, to, to, to get more than the sum of the parts rather than less out of these interfaces, these interactions. And I think it's going to be the same. I think what we have right now with the clash of, you know, the generation gap, if you like, is largely driven by the fact that different generations, uh, groups of different ages, have different abilities and different uh, um, uh, different views of their futures. You know, so, you know, people, uh, Jeanne Carmont, the world record holder for lifespan, was asked one day uh, when she was like 113, she said, uh, she was asked, how do you see your future? And Jeanne Carmont said, short, <laughs> right? So, you know, if that's no longer true, if people's future is not defined by their past because they don't have aging anymore, then it seems to me that that will offer a great opportunity for people of widely divergent chronological ages to interface better. You know, if you can keep up with your granddaughter on the dance floor, you might actually um, listen to their music a bit. Things like that. Yeah, exactly. Being, uh, you know, being a healthy person, sharing and living your wisdom through action is much different than, you know, saying it from a rocking chair as you slowly s- slip away. So that's one That's one of the things that excites me a lot when I think about it is people with decades and possibly centuries of accumulated wisdom that are able to act that out with their bodies rather than just, you know, tell younger people how things used to be and, and what decisions they should make and they don't listen anyway. So yeah, that's something I'm excited about. So I had a, a couple questions left to ask you. And you mentioned, I forgot her name, who lived to uh, 122, I think it was, Jean... Jean Camon. Jean Camon. You've mentioned in the past that a quote from one of your interviews is, at a, at a physical level, I have a very stressful life and at a mental level, not at all. And something that people have in common that live over 100 seems to be that they they encounter stress, but they're better at handling it. So for you, has that always been the way that you've operated? Have you cultivated that sense of moderating stress within such a a stressful lifestyle? Like where where does that come from for you? I wouldn't exactly say I've cultivated it. Maybe it's come naturally to me, but also I've been extremely lucky. If we think about, you know, what are the most insidious, the most potent forms of stress in life, perhaps the single worst one is frustration. In other words, a clear desire to achieve something and and a failure to achieve it, and that failure going on and on and on, and being unable to come to terms with that. Now, I've had the exact opposite life. You know, I've basically succeeded in everything I've tried to do. I tried to get involved in the crusade against aging, and I got involved. And I tried, I'm, I've been trying to make a difference, and I've probably made more difference than any other person on, on the planet. And that's a very great privilege. And I got there not only because I'm smart and charismatic and determined, but also because I was in the right place at the right time over and over again. I just got very lucky. So I have not really needed to cultivate the way of avoiding stress or managing stress that I, that I was talking about in the quote that you mentioned. I mean, maybe I have, maybe it's just like, it's just as time has gone on, I've just developed that, but I certainly haven't done it consciously. I feel a little bit in the same lane that you do where I, 
I'm super lucky for how I've grown up and, and the stresses that I've encountered that they haven't been anything too detrimental. And I also don't know exactly where the lack of freaking out comes from for the things that could possibly be detrimental or, or seem like a, a big problem. So I wanted to end off by directing people where to go, assuming that they are enthusiastic about the cause, about ending aging, sends, and different people are going to be able to do different things. And so you have people with massive amounts of wealth that are billionaires. You have maybe the average person with a small, moderate sum that they can uh, attribute uh, or contribute financially. And then maybe students or people that don't have money to give, but they want to advocate in some way. So for people in each of those three categories, what's the next thing they should do if, if they're listening to this podcast and want to get involved? Yeah, thank you for asking that. That's always the right last question. So, um, of course, the simple, simple answer is go to our website, sense.org. The website is built for every audience. So, you know, there's material there for everyone from experts through to complete novices in terms of what we do, what other people do. We have plenty of news, news about what's going on. We have news about where I'm going to be speaking in the next month or two, things like that. Of course, we have a newsletter. Absolutely, you know, if, you're, um, if you want to help financially at whatever level, you know, we have a nice friendly donate button. But if, if you are in a position to contribute to the science, then and you want guidance as to, you know, which laboratories might be worth joining and so on, you know, we have a contact form where you can ask us any question you like. And we're very well behaved about replying to those. Yeah, advocacy, as you say. So everybody can do that. You don't even have to have a podcast to do that. You can just, um, you know, everyone can speak to their colleagues, their friends, their family. Some people say, oh, dear, you know, I don't have any money, so I'm not in a position to actually, um, you know, make a significant difference in terms of accelerating the work. But I always like to point out that the less wealthy you are, the more friends you have that are wealthier than you. So, uh, you know, it all trickles up. And a huge amount of this is not just geared, geared towards enthusiasts talking to other enthusiasts and getting them to get more involved. It's also enthusiasts talking to skeptics because skeptics will be less vocal and less, you know, they will slow things down less if their basis for skepticism is undermined by solid, cogent reasoning, which is what I try to deliver and what everybody else can deliver to. Well, thank you. Thank you, Aubrey, so much for your time. And yeah, the, the, this conversation has been super insightful. I know your words and your work will convince a lot of people that haven't been convinced already. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the future. And again, thank you. I, I really do appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Tay. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Auxoro podcast. If this show has moved and inspired you in some small way, we would appreciate you taking the time to send this show to someone else you care about. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at at Auxoro and tune into our channel on YouTube by searching Auxoro for the video versions of these conversations. See you guys next time, motherfucker.